0: You might know that last weekend, I got to chaperone my daughter Sophia's band trip to New Orleans. Two buses full of high schoolers got to see the Gulf of Mexico, perform in front of Jackson Square, eat some Cajun food, and the highlight for me was we received a performance from six masters of jazz from Preservation Hall, the mecca of New Orleans music. It was amazing. And after playing, they took questions. It was like having a backstage pass, it was amazing. And at one point they were talking about the importance of jazz in their community. This isn't just a genre of music that some like and others don't care for. Like jazz, especially for black New Orleans, is more like food than a particular kind of food. Like everybody eats. Jazz is just a part of things. Just a part of the church. It's just a part of celebrations like parades. It's just a part of life and a part of death. So the clarinetists told us about their funerals. That there's a first line and a second line. I didn't quite follow, so I read up on this a little bit. The first line is when the casket, the clergy, and the family exit the church together, and they make their way to the burial. And a jazz band often accompanies this procession. With a dirge. Just a closer walk with thee. I mean, super slow. Super slow. And super sad. The horns are blurting with grief. Knowing what it takes to have a tuba make that sound... It's like emptying emptying your whole self into this horn. Grant it, Jesus, is my plea. Slow. And then amidst the tears and the grief of that dirge, the snare gets turned off and the drummer just interrupts with a whole new cadence. And new life comes from those horns. Bright, crisp notes replace the slurry blurting so that feet dragging with heads down are lifted up with feet that start to march, to dance even. Oh, when the saints, right? Marching in. Oh, when the saints go marching in. Right? It's bright and it's way different. The message is that in grief, tears are appropriate. And so is joy. Would you agree? Is joy appropriate at all times? In all places? First Lutheran is blessed with a beautiful worship space, I think. The windows, the high ceiling. But the way this space's architect made it unique was with his use of wrought iron. The pulpit I'm standing in is a unique piece of art with each gospel represented by a wrought iron square. The candlesticks on the altar table, he designed them. But my favorite thing he did for this space is our communion rail. We come forward to a spiritual feast at Holy Communion, a meal meant to gather us into a family of faith, We bring our burdens and our blessings to this rail, and we are met there with the real presence of Jesus, again today. It's a powerful sacrament that shapes us as individuals, and it shapes us as community every time we participate. And what I love is that every time we come forward to this rail, we are reminded about what is on offer from God. It is literally spelled out for us. On the north end, the first section of the communion rail says, The fruit of the Spirit is love. Which reminds me of a song we sometimes sing, What feast of love is offered here? It's a feast of love that is offered here. And then the next section says, The fruit of the Spirit is truth. We don't claim that God promises health, wealth, or happiness, but we do claim that God Always offers the truth. Because truth, we say, leads to freedom. Freedom from fear, freedom from jealousy, from want, from guilt, from shame, from worry, from despair. Truth sets us free to live abundant, rich lives. And then, as we come over to this side, uh, at this section right in front of me, it says the fruit of the Spirit is peace. We I mean, just think of how many times Jesus says, Peace be with you, in the midst of a moment that seems anything but peaceful. The fruit of the Spirit is love, truth, and peace. Is there ever a time when it's inappropriate to receive a fruit of the Spirit? Like, oh, God's love. Mm, not right now. I'm too busy hating over here. The truth, it's not a convenient time for the truth. Thank you. I'm going to live in the lies right now. God is offering peace? Uh, I'm thinking today's more of a non-peace kind of day. Like, I think most faithful Christians through prayer and Bible study believe that God is love, that truth is freedom from sin, and that peace is meant to be with us always. That's why we say, the peace of Christ be with you always, not just sometimes. The fruit of the Spirit is meant to always be appropriate, right? So why do we treat joy differently? This last part of the communion rail says the fruit of the Spirit is joy, and yet we oftentimes justify a resistance to joy. We defend ourselves against joy. We sometimes actually think it's the right thing to do, the proper thing to do to refuse joy. We'd never say that or think that about love, truth, or peace. It's like we think joy is only on offer from God when all the stars align. Lots of things have to fall into place. We have to deserve it enough. We have to have done or said the right things. Too often we treat joy as an earned dessert rather than a staple ingredient of the main course. I'm thinking about joy because of how the older brother in our text for today responds to the joy his father receives and that his father then shares upon the return of that lost son. It's a very famous parable, right? I'll bet as you heard that that's what the text was for the day, a lot of us were like, oh, I know that one, and maybe even had a hard time hearing it, really listening to it, because you already know it so well. It's the third in a series of parables that Jesus offers. Luke sets it up by telling us that tax collectors and sinners are coming near to listen to Jesus. And of course, these are not the right kind of people to be your groupies. Like, these are the dregs. These are the enemies of good people. The kinds of people that good people avoid eye contact with. They carry all the labels that the good people like to put on flawed people. In this case, the good people are Pharisees and scribes, and they see the pitiful band of humanity gathering around Jesus, and they say to themselves in as self-righteous a way as possible, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them oh this whole episode is 15 chapters into the gospel of luke so it's established to us at this point as readers it's been established to the tax collectors and the sinners in the story and it's been established to people like the pharisees and the scribes in the story it's all been established who jesus is and what he's about he's a healer he's healed many all kinds of people. He's taught all kinds of people and with great authority. He has done and said extraordinary things. But instead of being excited to meet this Jesus, instead of encouraging this ministry of Jesus or wanting to know more about how Jesus does what he does or why or what it all means, like that could have been their response, right? But instead of excitement or awe or curiosity, these Pharisees and scribes grumble. All the amazing love and welcome and wisdom, and they can't get past who Jesus includes. This guy welcomes sinners and eats with them. Scandal. So Jesus responds to these grumblers with three stories. He talks right at them. First, There's the story about finding the lost one sheep by leaving the 99. The second is about the lost coin, the woman with the lost coin. And then comes this very famous third parable. There's a lot of angles I could talk about. As Dick was reading, I'm like, oh, there's another sermon. But for today, I want to dwell on the last part of this story, when the younger son comes home and the father runs toward him, hugs and kisses him, puts a robe on him, and kills the fatted calf for a feast. And he says, let's eat and celebrate. So that's the pattern in all three of these stories that's really impossible to miss. Receiving joy leads to generosity. That's the pattern. The shepherd, in his joy, calls his friends and neighbors together to celebrate. The woman, in her joy, calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. And the Father, in his joy, throws a huge celebration of his own. Milo Kaufman wrote a book called Stewards of God where he said joyful people will be generous people. And generous people will be joyful people. It's difficult to say which is cause and which is effect for either appears to produce the other. That's our experience here at First Lutheran, right? Today we're celebrating that nearly 200 families turned in an intent of giving card that will financially support the ministries of First Lutheran. This church changes lives, both among our own membership and so far beyond our own walls. The grace that we proclaim, the hope we share, is rare, and it's worthy of our financial support. Our church over the last few years has become measurably more generous. Why? Because in our faithful moments, anyway, we receive joy. I've seen you do it. Mark Allen Powell, he's a seminary professor, and he says, in the Bible, generosity leads to rejoicing, and joy leads people to giving generously. He says, it could become a wondrous cycle, a carousel of cheer and altruism. Who would not want to take a few turns on so marvelous a ride? The older son. That's who. (laughs) That's the answer to his question. Because when the older son comes in from the fields, he hears music, he hears the dancing, or he sees the dancing, and his father's joy, he sees, has led to this generous feast. And the elder son asks, what's going on? Your brother's back. Everybody's celebrating. The elder brother's response, he became angry and refused to go in. So I want us to really understand this moment. I want you to be the older brother for a minute. Your dad has grieved the loss of his younger son as though he was dead. It's been pretty miserable for a while around the farm but you've kept it all going. As the older brother, you've had double the workload because of your little brother's absence. You've seen how all this hurt your dad, and now little brother comes back and is not only allowed to return, your dad is throwing the biggest party ever for him. So here's the question. Do you, older brother, have to be angry? Must your reaction include a grudge, jealousy, or a desire for your little brother to suffer? Could you receive joy that your little brother, your lost little brother, has been found? Could you receive joy that your workload is about to be cut in half? That your father no longer has to grieve? That your little brother has been found? That he is with you again? Could the Pharisee see tax collectors and sinners coming to Jesus and rejoice that these, the worst kind of people, the most lost kind of people, are responding to the healing and wholeness that's on offer from God through Jesus, through the teachings and grace of this Jesus? I mean, they could. Could we rejoice that God's love and truth and peace and joy are not only for certain people, who've said and done the right things at the right times, but that the fruit of the Spirit is for all of us, even those who aren't here today? We could. The elder brother's reaction of anger is not inevitable, but it's possible. We can see amazing grace in this world and get mad about it. (laughs) We can do that. I've done that. We can have very long memories, right? That thing she said or did that was genuinely bad, awful, and now she just gets to move on with her life? Like, where's the accountability? You're just gonna keep offering her love and truth and peace and joy as much as me? Are you kidding? I could say, wow, God's grace is really amazing. I could rejoice. I could receive her being found as joy. Or I could just get angry. Is joy appropriate at all times? In all places? It occurred to me by Thursday this past week that this is a stewardship text. We are made stewards of God's many gifts. God just gives us love, truth, peace, joy, and more. And I have every right to block love, to ignore truth, I can embrace anxiety and push off peace my whole life long. And joy, I can just live in the dirge, bitter about how God loves them, whoever them is. This image of the older son standing outside the party, arms crossed, angry, we can do that. We can choose misery, we can choose anger. We can choose a life absent of joy. We can judge. Remember, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Our response can be, but that's not the father's response. The father in our story experiences the relationship with his younger son turned to dust. His son asks if he can basically treat his father as though he is dead take his money and no longer participate in a relationship with him. This is an experience of dust. I think we've all had a relationship or many more that's gone to dust. When the father sees his boy in the distance, his dirge is interrupted. A new cadence is struck and he receives the joy of new life, new relationship. He sprints out to his lost son while he's still far off. He's filled with compassion. He hugs and kisses his boy before his son can even say a word. The father just rejoices. Henry Nowen said, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. Another says, joy is a decision, a really brave one about how you're going to respond to life. And that's the thing about all the gifts God gives. The mysterious thing about God gifts, every single one of them, is that God designs us in such a way that when we receive one, whether it's love or truth or peace or joy, when we receive God's gifts, we just can't keep them to ourselves. We can't. Loved by God, we end up loving our neighbor. Receiving truth we then live in truth and share it. Living in peace, we become peacemakers. And choosing joy, we just are generous. What these parables seem to get at is that we are able to, like the Pharisees, remain stuck in the dirge, arms crossed outside the celebration. We are also able to take a place in the second line, dancing to the beat of new life, To the beat of joy, even while Putin's war rages in Ukraine, even while humanity won't treat the earth better, even while my good friend is fighting cancer, even while I'm an imperfect pastor and father and husband that lets lots of people down, I could come up with all kinds of reasons to resist God's grace as though I don't deserve joy, as though I haven't done enough, as though now is not the right time or place for it but grace is an interrupter. Maybe you're only partway finished with a self-imposed checklist that you think has to be accomplished before you're going to let joy in. Consider your dirge interrupted. Your timeline for joy, maybe, maybe your timeline for when joy is appropriate for you amidst your many imperfections Maybe you should remember that today your dirge is interrupted. The speeches you tell yourself about why you should put on a frown face, cross your arms and resist joy. Consider your dirge interrupted. God looks at you in the distance and runs to you. Filled with compassion, ready to love on you, ready to celebrate that you still are despite the dangers and temptations of this struggle. God knows your life's hard. And yet here you are today. You made it. Living into a new life. Oh, when the saints come marching in, come to this rail in a few minutes and encounter the fruit of the Spirit again. Receive All of it. Amen.